For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation, who support reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world/donate or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hey for the Wild community, it's Ayana here. Before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment to talk about our Patreon. We are so grateful to all of the amazing members of our community who contribute to bringing this podcast to life each week. We couldn't do this work without you. To keep For the Wild freely accessible to all, long-term we're exploring how we can fund the podcast without resigning ourselves to overly commercializing our airtime in order to sustain production. We believe that independent media plays an essential role in telling the truth outside of corporate agendas, and we want to be in integrity as much as possible with how we support this work. We have around 700 Patreon members currently, and we are dreaming into a goal for our Patreon community to grow to 2,000 supporting members in the coming months. Join us at patreon.com slash for the wild. And if you're already supporting us in one way or another, we want to thank you so much and wish you a beautiful season wherever you are. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today you'll be hearing part one of my conversation with Max Wilbert. And this is what we're seeing with this so-called electric vehicle revolution. It's not something that's good for the planet. It's something that provides convenience and luxury to the people who can afford it. And it provides destruction for the planet. It provides poison for the planet. The last wild places are at threat because of this green energy and this green technology push that we're seeing right now. Max Wilbert is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide. A third-generation dissident, he came of age in a family of anti-war and undoing racism activists in post-WTO Seattle. His latest book is the forthcoming Bright Green Lies, how the environmental movement lost its way and what we can do about it. He has been active in social movements for nearly 20 years. Well, Max, welcome to For the Wild. I'm so excited to chat today about the work you are doing on the ground this very moment. Thank you so much, Ayana. I'm really happy to be with you. Wonderful. Well, before we delve into what is being proposed at Thacker Pass, I'd like to begin in reverence for the land. And in an article titled, The Cost of a Battery, you write, quote, For 16 million years, there is stone and there is wind and there is water here, at the place now called Thacker Pass. There is the drumbeat of pronghorn hooves on soil. There is the patter of pygmy rabbits. There is the soundless flight of a burrowing owl. There is the slow orbit of an ant around her nest. And there is the howl of coyote in the blue pre-dawn, end quote. So for listeners who 
are unfamiliar with this place. Can you situate us in what is now known as Thacker Pass, which is located on the traditional and unceded territory of the Paiute and Shoshone in so-called Nevada? Yeah, this place is part of the Great Basin. And the region around here is made up of many different mountain ranges separated by these broad, flat valleys in between them. So I'm looking right now across this rolling expanse of sagebrush to the east of me, heading towards uh, the Santa Rosa mountain range, which rises to almost 10,000 feet. So Thacker Pass is in between two of those mountain ranges, the Montana Mountains and the Double H Mountains. And it's this corridor between the Quinn River Valley to the east and the Kings River Valley to the west. This place is called the Sagebrush Ocean. And it's a really apt name for what it's like to be here. Um, the, the way the sage sort of rolls away across the gentle slopes to the south and to the east of me right now, they look a little bit like waves on the ocean. Uh, there's no trees here. It's the sagebrush is the keystone species. And most of the life, most of the action here takes place below the height of your waist. And so a lot of people drive through regions like this that are moving 70 miles an hour. They never get out of the car. And even if they do get out of the car, they never get down on their hands and knees or lay down on the ground and really look at what's happening in among the sagebrush, in among the rabbit brush and all the different species who live here. This place, Thacker Pass, when we first came out here, we didn't know the traditional Paiute name for it, but we learned that name from some elders um, a month or two ago who told us that the name is Pahimaha. Uh, that translates as rotten moon. And the rotten part comes from a, a massacre of some Paiute families that took place here long ago. And the moon part comes because when you look at this place from the east down in the Quinn River Valley and you look back up towards Thacker Pass, uh, you see the mountains to the north and the south are, are sort of plateau mountains. So they're pretty flat from that perspective, high but flat. And Thacker Pass is, is sort of this gap in between them that swoops down in a half moon crescent shape. So the life here is incredible. Just the other morning, we took a hike up to the top of the mountain a couple miles outside of our camp. And we got to observe the mating rituals of the sage grouse. The sage grouse are this bird who lives in the, in the sage here. They're dependent on the sage. They're, they're called an obligate sagebrush dependent species. They can't survive without sagebrush. And they are incredible birds. They have the, the males have these big pouches in their chest. And so we hiked up there at dark uh, before the sun rose around 4.30 in the morning. And we approached the mating ground, which is called a lek. And this is the traditional mating place that they come back to year after year, generation after generation. 
and we couldn't see anything. But so the only no way we knew we were approaching was because of this sound that the males make as they're dancing, their their ritualistic mating dances and attracting the females. So we hear this sound that's so hard to describe. It's almost like a reverberating aqueous water sound. And as the sun started to peak over the mountains to the east, we started to see the birds on the hillside next to us. And we started to hear and see the females flying in from all different directions. This is a species that has declined by between 97 and 99% from their historic numbers. They're barely hanging on. And this region right here is one of the most important sage grouse habitats left in the world. So being able to see what was happening up there was absolutely incredible. But it was also incredibly sad because we only saw five males on that morning, five male sage grouse. And if it's true that 97 to 99% of the sage grouse are gone, then at that very same place, a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, we would have seen hundreds of sage grouse. So we're sort of always dealing with that here. We're dealing with the, the incredible beauty and wildness of this place that still remains and the fact that it has faced a lot of harm and there's a lot more coming. Just the other morning, the next day after we went to watch the sage grouse, there was a herd of mule deer on the hill just above our camp. And they were grazing and just enjoying the sunshine. And a few of them started running back and forth and they weren't scared. There weren't any predators around. Half the deer were still just sitting there, relaxed, eating. They were just running for the pure joy of it. They were running because it's springtime and the grass is green and they're with their loved ones. And being able to observe these things and be on the land for uh, a long time now, it's absolutely incredible, but it also really brings home the, the threats that are facing this place. Thank you so much for grounding us in this land that you are fighting for. And yeah, you and Will Fall created the resistance camp Protect Thacker Pass because the area is set to be developed by Lithium Nevada, a subsidiary of Lithium America, in order to mine an estimated 179 metric tons of lithium over the next 46 years. So can you give listeners some background on the purpose of the resistance camp Protect Thacker Pass, and what will be the ramifications to the ecological makeup of this area in terms of biodiversity, pollinators, migratory corridors, etc. Mining is incredibly destructive. It's one of the leading causes of species extinctions around the world. It causes an incredible amount of air pollution. Every hard rock mine in the world poisons the water around it. And that's not just true right now. You can go back hundreds and even thousands of years. You can find mines from the Roman Empire that are still polluted and poisoning the water 2,500 years later. So when we learned that 
this corporation, Lithium Nevada, is planning to build an open pit strip mine here, we told ourselves, if it's wrong to blow up a mountain for coal, for mountaintop removal coal mining, it's wrong to blow up a mountain for lithium too. So there are almost 18,000 acres of this land that are threatened by this, this one mine. That's just one mine. There's another lithium mine that's being proposed about 25 miles to the north of here. And in between here and there, the mining company that plans to destroy this place has mining claims on top of the Montana mountains as well. And we assume that they will plan to exploit and destroy that place as well. So this zone, this area is a sacrifice zone for lithium. And if the mine is built here, the sagebrush that I'm looking out on right now, they're going to come in with bulldozers and they're going to knock down and destroy and crush every single sagebrush plant. They're going to roll over every single wild onion that's coming out of the soil right now, you know, emerging into the spring sunshine. This tr these traditional food sources, the traditional medicines of the Paiute people, all of it is going to be destroyed. They call in the mining industry, they call the topsoil and the plants that live there, they call them overburden. That's the term that they use to describe the basis of life on this planet. And their approach to it is to bulldoze it out of the way so that they can get at what is underneath, so that they can get at the minerals and blow them up, put them in their factories and their processing facilities, and extract them to make as much money as they possibly can. So I mentioned that Thacker Pass is a corridor between these mountain ranges. There's the Quinn River to the east and the Kings River to the west. There's the Montana Mountains to the north and the Double H Mountains to the south. This is the crossing ground right here. This is the place where all of the species move between the mountain ranges, between the river valleys. The humans who live in this area traditionally use this area extensively. There's cultural sites and archeological sites scattered throughout this entire region, including obsidian areas, gathering areas. I'm looking right now at a place called Sentinel Rock, which is a rocky butte at the east side of Thacker Pass. We visited that site the other day with some members of the Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribe. And we walked across thousands and thousands of fragments from people making arrowheads and other tools out of obsidian. The ground around this butte over here is just covered in these. Every step you take, you're walking on this land that ancestors uh, sat on with their families. Uh, that ancestors, you know, gathered wild onions on and gathered fish out of the river. So in October, I visited this place for the first time. And I had a really profound experience of a dream that came to me when I was out here sleeping on the ground under a sagebrush. And in the dream, I, I dreamt that 300 people came to defend this place and to say no to this mining company. And so ever since that happened, I've been trying to pursue that dream. Um, 
we felt that it was not only important to speak out against this project, but to physically put our bodies in the way of it. Because I don't trust the government agencies. I don't trust the regulatory system. I don't trust the courts to hold these companies accountable and to actually act on behalf of the land. Um, one longtime activist here in Nevada said that this state is like a banana republic for mining companies. It's basically a free-for-all, and they can get away with a lot out here. So we figured that if this place was going to be protected, we needed to do it ourselves, and that's why we came. I'm so happy you did, and I'm thinking about how in the past For the Wild has discussed man camps, but it has always been in context to oil and gas in places like North Dakota, Texas, and British Columbia. But these camps and fossil fuel extraction are not mutually inclusive. So I'd love if you could talk about the potential for these man camps in terms of lithium mining, and if the surrounding community near Thacker Pass is also concerned about the totality of the violence that Lithium Nevada will create. A few months ago, we went to a community meeting in the town of Oravada, which is about 20 miles southeast of here. And a Native family from the Fort McDermott Reservation came out to that meeting as well. And we were standing outside talking. And one of the first concerns that they brought up was the danger of man camps and the influx of workers that these projects tend to bring. The companies always point towards employment and bringing more jobs to the community as a benefit of these projects. But for the people who don't have the skills or who don't get one of those jobs, and certainly for the future generations who have to live with the pollution, those benefits you know, may be more an illusion than reality. And there are also a lot of harms that come with these influx of workers. These industrial projects, mining, uh, oil and gas, as you mentioned, many other types of projects, they tend to bring, you know, I may be throwing some shade on myself here, but young men tend to not have the best decision-making in this culture. We live in a patriarchy. We live in a society in which, you know, our, our young men and boys are taught to exploit and to, to hurt people. That's the norm in the dominant culture. And so when you bring in a thousand workers, 500 workers to build these projects, you're going to have some people coming into the community who are going to cause some problems. There's a documented increase in hard drugs, uh, serious crimes, domestic violence, human trafficking, prostitution, missing and murdered indigenous women, and non-indigenous women as well, for that matter, when these industries come into communities. Just recently in Minnesota, the Line 3 pipeline construction, there was a bit of a scandal because several of their workers were caught in a human trafficking sting. And this is a problem that's known to occur. These companies know that this is a possibility. And in the case of the Line 3 pipeline, the company was required to set aside several hundred thousand dollars to provide training and services to both their workers and the community 
because they knew that there would be an increase in this type of violence and these different community issues. These corporations still want to go ahead with it. They still want to make their money. So the community is definitely concerned about these issues. They're concerned about a big increase in traffic on these very rural, quiet country roads. They're worried about hazardous chemicals and explosives being transported outside the front door of their local community school. And they're concerned about impacts that this project will have on, on the wildlife and on the water. So from top to bottom, there, there are a lot of concerns in this community. We went to a meeting yesterday that the mining company held with a community in McDermott, just up north here. And they're really good at trying to convince people to overlook these problems, trying to convince people that these mines will actually be good for the local community. But a lot of people here aren't buying it. And we're trying to help people see through the lies that the company is telling. Just last night, they told a series of lies and we're working to document those, reference the actual data that refutes their claims and help people understand what's really at stake with these projects. Because once it goes in, it's too late. You can't go back. So from what I understand, since Lithium Nevada has received the record of decision, they're now moving into the phase of applying for state permits and water right transfers. And I really want to highlight this because Nevada is consistently considered the driest state in the U.S., receiving less than a foot of rainfall per year without factoring in climate change. Yet Lithium Nevada plans to use 850 million gallons of water annually. And to make matters even worse, in preparation for our conversation, I came across accounts where it's been suggested that Lithium Nevada is underreporting flow rates and misclassifying creeks, all of which will allow Lithium Nevada to potentially dry up groundwater and streams scot-free. So can you elaborate on this a bit more to underscore the duplicity of these companies and yeah, just the absurdity of pushing for lithium mining in a place like Nevada, given that the West is already experiencing severe droughts? Yeah, everything revolves around water out here. This area gets nine inches of rain in a good year, and there's been a prolonged drought. So water is life here. 
and everyone understands that it's very direct the ranchers understand it the farmers understand it the native communities understand it and it's true that lithium mining mining in general uses an incredible amount of water there is one active lithium mine in nevada currently and it's what's called a brine lithium mine and what that means is the lithium is dissolved in this uh, salty water in these dry lake beds underneath in the groundwater. And so what these companies do is they go in, they dig wells, they pump up this lithium rich groundwater and they put it in these big evaporation ponds and they let the sun bake down on it day after day after day until the water evaporates away and they're left with these lithium rich salts, which can be concentrated and refined into high purity lithium. This uses billions of gallons of water around the world. In fact, producing one ton of lithium with this method requires about half a million gallons of water. So in places like Australia, Tibet, uh, the Andean Altiplano, where Chile and Argentina and Bolivia come together, this is where most lithium extraction takes place today. It's actually a quite small industry currently in the United States, but it's not going to stay that way. There's almost 8,000 lithium mining claims in the state of Nevada alone. So the lithium mine proposed for here at Thacker Pass is a clay. The lithium is in the clay sediment in the soil, so it's not in brine. It's a different process to extract it. But this project would still use almost 4 million gallons of water per day. So that number that you quoted, 850 million gallons per year, that's actually only for the first four years of this project, what they call phase one. Once they get the mine fully operational and move into phase two, which will only take five years, they'll be using double that amount, about 1.4 billion gallons per year. So this water is coming out of an aquifer down in the Quinn River Valley that's already overpumped by billions and billions of gallons every year. The river, the Quinn River that gives this valley its name, it's bone dry. You drive over it on your way up to Thacker Pass and there is not a drop of water in there. You have to go miles and miles up to the north closer to the headwaters to find water still flowing because it's all being stolen. Now, this is actually quite common in the Great Basin region. This region is called the Great Basin because none of the water drains out to the ocean. People are probably familiar with the Great Salt Lake, right? And this is the classic example of a closed basin. All the rivers and streams drain down into the Great Salt Lake. And the only way that water leaves is by evaporation. And so the water is very, very salty. This is the case all across almost all of the state of Nevada is part of the Great Basin. And so uh, rivers like Quinn River, like the Kings River, they flow out into these desert basins and then they evaporate and no water is left. So unlike most places in the world where the closer to the top of the stream you get, the less water is there, it's the opposite here. The closer to the source you get, the more water there is. And the further downstream you go, the less remains. And as water extraction 
has expanded over the years. And as global warming has made this place increasingly dry, the rivers are being stepped backward closer and closer to their headwaters. Less and less water is here. So here at Thacker Pass, there is a lawsuit that has been filed by a local rancher, one of several lawsuits against the project. And he alleges that the mining company has lied and been extremely misleading in their hydrology reports. So he says that they undercounted the flow of springs and streams in the area. They called some streams that flow all the time ephemeral. So they said that these streams dry out in the summertime when in reality they flow year round. And they even ignored some springs completely. Now, now this may sound like not a big deal to people who live in areas where there are big rivers and there's a lot of water. I think you're down somewhere in Northern California, right? And there's the Klamath, it's a huge river. I live near the Willamette River and the Mackenzie in Oregon. They're massive rivers and there's a lot of water coming down. But out here in Nevada, water is so precious that one spring, one tiny little spring can be the difference between being able to survive and live here and having to go somewhere else. If one spring goes dry, an entire family or an entire community might have to leave. So a lot of people have said that this mining company is trying to make their impact look as minimal as they can um, because water is life here. People recognize that. Now, some people say that we need more data, but the truth is really nobody knows what will happen to the water here if this project goes forward. The hydrology is complicated. The science is complicated. The, the mine plans to dig 400 feet underground. And even with all their tests and all their wells that they have dug, they don't really know everything that's going on underneath us, down in the soil, down in the aquifer. So the only way we're going to find out about some of these harms is if the project actually goes forward and the springs go dry or the meadow dries up and the grasses die and turn to dust, or the groundwater is poisoned by the toxins coming out of this mine and its tailings pond. And at that point, it's too late because groundwater can't be replaced. You can't repair an aquifer, you can't fix it. It's been tried around the world and it's never worked. So once the destruction has been caused to the water here, it's too late to go back. And that's why we think the water is really key here. It's really key to the fight for this place. And, you know, staying up here at Thacker Pass, there's dust. It's quite dry. I'm not used to this. I grew up in Washington State uh, near Seattle, Duwamish Territory. And so I'm used to humidity and lakes and rivers and streams and moisture. And it's unusual for me. I've spent enough time in Nevada over the past decade that I've become better adapted to the desert. But the life that is here is so exquisitely adapted to this place. It can survive in these conditions that seem very harsh. And that's not just true of non-human life. The human people, too, know how to survive here. But when these mining companies come along and they take all the water and they poison what remains, what can you do? What can life do? Without water, there's nothing. I'd now like to transition into a larger conversation on dispelling some of the fallacies when it comes to green energy, both in terms of the infrastructure needed, 
as well as the amount of lithium that is projected to be extracted. And I want to read an excerpt from an article titled Lithium America Advancers Thacker Pass Project in Nevada from the Northern Miner. Quote, How much lithium is used in the U.S. today for vehicles? It's about 18,000 tons, Evans pointed out. And there's about 5,000 tons that's made in the U.S. today. You go to 2025, you need a little over 100,000 tons just to fuel electric vehicles. And then when you get to 2030, it's about 360,000 tons, end quote. And now in the same article, it's predicted that in order to accommodate 15 to 20 percent of EV sales in 2030, industry will need to extract about 2 million tons of lithium. So I wonder if you could respond to the absurdity of how much lithium will be required, as well as what sort of infrastructure will be required to further so-called green energy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge problem, and people need to recognize the scale of it. The transition from fossil fuels, well, first I should say that it's really important that we move away from fossil fuels, that we abandon that way of life. It's critical. And I've fought the fossil fuel industry for years. I've blockaded coal trains. I stopped the tar sands project in Utah climbing up on heavy equipment. I've campaigned against pipelines. It's so important that we fight the fossil fuel industry. But the whole narrative that by switching what is in the fuel tank or under the hood of our car, we can save the planet is so wrong and so destructive. Environmentalists used to understand that cars were part of the problem, not part of the solution. And you can really see this when we look at this booming demand for lithium for electric cars. It's absolutely incredible. The demand right now is rising at about three lithium mines per year. So the demand for lithium is creating a need for three new lithium mines per year around the world. That's accelerating. So right now, electric cars only make up about 1% of the cars on the road. And if we want to transition, or if those in power want to transition our society to all electric vehicles, they're talking about replacing over a billion fossil fuel powered cars with new electric vehicles that require these large lithium ion batteries to function. So I want people to understand a few things. First, producing lithium is not good for the planet. It may result in less carbon emissions than powering cars with fossil fuels, but it's simply a different type of destruction. And it's not carbon neutral, it's not carbon free. So for example, here at Thacker Pass, the carbon emissions from this site would be more than 150,000 tons per year. That's about 2.3 tons of carbon dioxide for every ton of lithium that will be produced. So this is not a carbon neutral technology and it's not an earth friendly technology. It's a highly destructive technology. So our movements used to understand this. And one of the examples that I really like to point out to people, this is an example that I wrote about in a book that I recently released called Bright Green Lies. I asked the question, what would be better for the planet? A car that gets 
100 miles to the gallon or a car that gets one mile to the gallon. And usually when people hear that, they think, of course, 100 miles to the gallon is far better for the planet, right? But that's a simplistic understanding. Because if your car only gets one mile to the gallon, you're not going to drive anywhere, right? <laughs> if it costs you $3 in gas for every mile that you go, all of a sudden you're going to reconsider that trip down to get some tacos at the local corner store, right? You're going to reconsider whether you really need to go shopping today, whether you really need to drive 500 miles next week to go on a business trip. So when efficiency is very low, it actually creates a negative incentive for car culture as a whole. Now on the flip side, if the cars are very efficient, then all of a sudden it's very cheap to drive. So everyone wants a car because it becomes very practical to drive. And that drives increased demand for cars, which means that the corporations producing them can make them more cheaply with economies of scale at their factories. Now, this means that as more and more people get cars, the political climate and the culture begins to shift. There's more incentives towards urban sprawl, towards building more highways and more roads and more parking lots. And all of a sudden, our government budgets begin to shift. Our city planning begins to shift. The entire culture becomes more centered around cars. And this is what we're seeing with this so-called electric vehicle revolution. It's not something that's good for the planet. It's something that provides convenience and luxury to the people who can afford it. And it provides destruction for the planet. It provides poison for the planet. The last wild places are at threat because of this green energy and this green technology push that we're seeing right now. These places like Thacker Pass that have avoided being destroyed by the oil and gas industry, by the coal industry, by all other sorts of extractive industries, there are only so many of these wild places left that haven't been sliced up or bulldozed or fracked or mined or turned into urban sprawl. And now they're under threat increasingly because of industrial solar energy sprawl, because of lithium mining, because of vast wind energy projects. This is not a theoretical issue. And, and if you're in Nevada, especially in this region, it's something that people have to pay attention to because it's sunny here, it's windy here, there's a lot of lithium. So I have some friends right now, a couple hundred miles south of here, who have been fighting a vast industrial solar project called Yellow Pine Solar which in about six months from now, they'll be bulldozing 93,000 acres of Mojave Desert yucca, yucca plants hundreds of years old, and these incredible desert pavements, these living soils that sequester carbon and serve as the foundation for the entire ecology of the region. That's all gonna be bulldozed for thousands of acres of solar energy. That's not good for the planet. That energy is going to be used to power shopping malls, to power people's electric vehicles so that they can go to whatever, a sporting event, right? So they can go see the Raiders play in Las Vegas, the new football team. So they can go to the casino. That's going to power the wells that are pumping the groundwater out of places like this. And the final thing I'll just say is that this way of life, this culture, whether you want to call it colonialism or capitalism or 
industrial civilization or whatever terms you like to use, it's insatiable. It's created this culture of never ending consumption. There can never be enough. We always need more growth. And that's true with things like lithium as well. So there is credible research being done that says that there may not be enough economically recoverable lithium in the entire world to build the number of batteries that would be needed for everyone to drive electric vehicles, for all the cars to be transferred to electric vehicles. There's just not enough. So even if every Thacker Pass is destroyed, even if the Jindali mine north of here is developed, even if the Montana mountains, this critical sage grouse habitat just to the north of where we're sitting now, even if all of that is bulldozed and turned into open pit mines, and even if that happens with every lithium deposit all around the world, there still won't be enough to meet that demand. And that really points towards the bankruptcy of that whole worldview. We're not going to buy our way or consume our way out of the ecological crisis. And if people are telling themselves that, then I think they really need to step back and examine their values. They need to examine the underlying premise of that whole mindset, because that mindset, that mindset of consumption and growth and technological progress, or what some people call technological escalation, that is what is destroying the planet. And so I think believing that that will save the planet actually flies in the face of all the evidence. with you and I really appreciated how you just laid that out for us and what the domino effect is when industry becomes effective or efficient and I guess effective as well and hmm yeah I I know initially some of the framings around Thacker Pass pointed out that the BLM fast-tracked their record of decision during the final week of the Trump administration. But you point out that this really doesn't matter because Biden himself recently signed an order emphasizing the needs for domestic mining of minerals like lithium. And it's not just at a federal level. I also read that Nevada state lawmakers passed a bill during their 2019 legislative session requiring the state generate 50% of its electrical energy from renewable resources by 2030 and 100% by 2050. So I don't think this will 
come as a surprise to our listeners, but I do want to ask you to speak about what is going to be required of us, because it's clear that for companies like Lithium Nevada, these projects are going to get rubber stamped no matter who is in office. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I just want to point out one thing, which is that climate change is really terrifying. (laughs) You know, it is a serious existential threat. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit ironic because Naomi Klein is one of the biggest proponents these days of renewable energy technologies and electric cars and so on. But she wrote the book called The Shock Doctrine, which really lays out how that fear can be exploited to enrich corporations, to facilitate extractive industries, and to shift you know, an entire nation, an entire people towards these profit-driven goals. It's very ironic to me that Naomi Klein is the one who wrote that book because it seems like right now with the climate change movement, everyone's fear is being taken advantage of. And it's a real fear, of course. It's a real, very real fear. But that fear is being exploited. People are easier to lie to and deceive when they're very afraid. And, you know, so you're you're absolutely right, though, Ayana. I think this is a bipartisan problem. You know, capitalism is a bipartisan project. Uh, in this country, the Democrats and the Republicans are both fully on board with extracting as much wealth as possible from the planet, with destroying much of what remains. And I think of it as sort of like a good cop, bad cop routine. So Trump uh, gets to be the one who cuts all the environmental regulations and takes all the heat. And then the Biden administration can create these policies calling for more electric vehicles and actually benefit greatly from Trump's environmental regulations getting cut. And then by the time they put the environmental regulations back in, there'll probably be another Republican far-right person back in power who can cut them again and get the next round of extraction rolling. So this pendulum swing between the good cop and the bad cop actually helps the exploitation move forward. It's a really smart way of keeping a population in line. And, you know, I I don't necessarily think there's some great conspiracy. I think that it's it's out in the open how our system works. You know, what, what they call bribery and corruption in other countries, we call campaign contributions here. And they're out in the open and they're completely legal. Um, so it's not really a mystery how this is working. Um, but we all get so caught up, you know, including myself at times, you know, we get so caught up in the partisan politics and we forget that out here, the sagebrush are growing and they're under threat, and they have these incredible new leaves, this new growth coming in. I got to tell a really quick story real quick. This is off topic, but it's so so incredible. I want to throw it in. I was walking up on the mountainside a couple nights ago around sunset, and I came upon this giant sagebrush bush. She was about seven or eight feet tall, And I walked around to the uphill side and I looked at one of the leaves and I saw these ants crawling around on the tip of the sagebrush leaves. And I thought the ants were eating the sagebrush, but then I looked more closely and I realized that there were aphids on those leaves. And I don't know if you know much about entomology and ants and their behavior, but 
ants have this incredible thing that they do with aphids where they will farm them. They will keep them as livestock, essentially. And they almost like we would keep chickens. And they don't eat them. They actually protect the aphids from predators. And as I stuck my face close up to these sagebrush leaves, the ants reared up on their hind legs and waved their pincers at me, like, don't come in here and mess with our aphids. <laughs> but uh, they don't eat the aphids. They actually stroke them in a certain way, and the aphids exude this really sweet nectar, and the ants eat that. And I was just thinking about the contrast between this beautiful dance between these three species who are living together, who are all thriving in this place and actually enhancing biodiversity, providing food for other beings and making the world a more rich place. And I was contrasting that with the extractive mining companies that want to come in and destroy everything and poison the water and leave behind a wasteland. So that's that's a total tangent that's not related to your question at all so i apologize for that but to get back to your question i think we need to build our own independent political power and i think that can look different in different places i think it can look like third parties it can look like insurgent political movements uh you know local democracy projects democratic confederalism the type of work that's being done in Jackson, Mississippi with Mississippi Rising, the type of work that we see in places like Rojava, there are all these different models for how people can reclaim self-determination on an ecological basis, build, building communities rooted in justice. And I think it's really important that we remember that the destruction is not going to stop until we make it impossible for them to continue destroying. And it's, it's somewhat ironic, but when I think about Thacker Pass, I think about stopping fossil fuels to stop this project, because this mine would require about 11,000 gallons of diesel fuel per day. And that's just on the mine site itself. That doesn't include the trucks running back and forth to the other towns. That doesn't include the trains that are bringing in the raw materials, one of which is sulfur from oil refineries, which will be the main chemical input for the sulfuric acid processing that they will use to refine this lithium. So if you stop fossil fuels, you stop lithium mining, which is very ironic. It's completely dependent on fossil fuels from top to bottom from the fuel that the trucks run to the steel that's used in constructing the buildings and the processing facilities to the cranes that erected the power lines that will bring electricity to the project, dependent on fossil fuels from top to bottom. So I think we need to relocalize our economies. We need to relocalize our food systems. It's really not a mystery how to live in a sustainable way. To me, I, I know it's not to you, either and probably to many listeners of this show it's not some great mystery or some esoteric you know thing that is totally unintelligible to live in a sustainable way all of our ancestors knew how to do it and there are thousands of cultures around the world today that know how to live sustainably we all have that potential in us but i think we need to remember as well that we need to stop 
of these global industrial systems from destroying the planet. And that can be done in different ways. You can use the law. It can be done with nonviolence. It can be done with direct action. It can be done with revolution and more direct forms of conflict. But I think that's what it's going to come down to is we have to stop them from destroying the planet. And we have to rebuild those more localized ways of flourishing with the land rather than setting ourselves against it if we're going to have a future. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for all that you just shared and the clarity and this type of calmness in which you describe the insanity of this massive resource extraction project and also what you see that needs to be done in order to protect what is left. And yeah, I want to make sure listeners receive information on how they can get involved and learn more and support. So maybe you can share any useful information about the status of the camp currently and what Protect Thacker Pass is asking of us at the moment or just any information that you think would be helpful for folks who want to get more involved? Yeah, absolutely. We definitely want more people to come out here and join us, at least for a short time, uh, to experience what it's like here. I really think that direct experience is how people change. I think we can argue and we can have conversations and we can try and convince each other of things. But I really, I've worked as a wilderness guide off and on for many years. And I always say, you know, the land is the teacher. I just make sure that people are fed and stay dry and whatever, you know, but the land is the real teacher. And so I think having people out here to actually see the place and walk in the sagebrush and go up on the mountainside and watch the sunset, like that's what's really going to affect you and change you and like transform your soul. That's the profound experience. That's what's going to take people and make us into the people who this land needs. So I really want to encourage people to come out for a visit, even if it can't be very long, but we need people also to commit long-term. We need more organizers who are willing to come out here regularly to do the hard work of organizing. You know, we're trying to not just posture and, you know, try and make ourselves seem like the most radical people in the room, <laughs> make ourselves look cool on social media or something, but like do the hard work, you know, that's not glamorous often. And we also need people to support from afar. You know, people have been writing articles, writing letters to the editor, putting in phone calls to politicians, putting pressure on environmental groups that you're a part of to speak out against these type of projects. People can check out our website, which is protectthackerpass.org. We're also on social media, and you can find more information there. You can share our stories and the photos and videos that we're putting out there. That's helpful. Uh, we are taking donations. So far, we've raised about $13,000, and we've spent about four or four and a half of that. I haven't done the latest accounting on some of the receipts. So it's probably about $4,500 we've spent so far. We're expecting that we will be seeing some big expenses in the future. There's a potential for lawsuits. There's the potential for direct action and bail funds and so on. 
we are making funds available to people who want to come visit, but who have a financial barrier to that. So if you're interested in asking for some funds to help you get out here, that's something we can potentially provide. We're not, you know, we're not promising that to everyone. Uh, we're, we have a little application process for that. But if you need some financial help, we'd love to help get you out here if we can. And yeah, I mean, start your own fight. <laughs> start your own fight too. You know, that's, that's one of my biggest hopes is beyond what's happening here. I hope this inspires you. And I hope you do the same thing with the mining project that's threatening the mountain in your area. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Buffalo Rose, Heavy Bird, Aviva La Fay, and Forest Vale. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, and Francesca Glasspell. 